गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय टाले कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय भक्ताय नमो नमः प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग एंड मे हैव ए ब्लेस्ड स्टार्ट ऑफ योर वीक एंड वी आर कंटिन्यूइंग टुडे दिस डे विद a new see a new lecture on our series on radical personalism today in lecture 22 where we will be addressing the second and last part on our sub series on contemplative prayer today is speaking about developing a contemplative mind but as usual let's make a brief recap of what we saw last tuesday <clears throat> when we started our section on contemplative prayer part 1 where we talk about the art of sacred appeal and we started by describing how the very topic of contemplative prayer somehow includes all the previous topics we have been talking about so far like vulnerability non-dual thinking and individuation and the connection between guru and disciple and the principle of divine ignorance and so forth so on and so forth and then we started by describing what contemplative prayer is not some indirect way of approaching to the matter mentioning how contemplative prayer uh, is not something functional in the sense of something that i do to get something i want something in which an action through which i try to manipulate god give me what i need provide what i am requesting please me serve me some some somehow an attempt of god domestication so to say uh, but with ulterior motives for our own separate agenda that's not contemplative prayer also contemplative prayer is not any form of meritocracy where we will obtain particular result according to our own merit or deserving also we mentioned how contemplative prayer prayer in itself in its substantial sense is not something merely limited to the recital of certain prayers that have been already composed by someone else in the past uh, or nor even to prayers that we may compose and pronounce them through words but even has can have can can be related to thoughts or even beyond thoughts having no thoughts having no words but presenting ourselves naked in front of the sweet absolute it's a stance you ultimately we could say contemplative prayer is an inner stance in relation to the divine so in that connection we start speaking also about what contemplative prayer is how we described how the very word contemplative or contemplation is connected with con and temple whose latin root basically has to do with contemplum or with within the temple It implies a certain stance through which we constantly stay remain in a temple to construct a temple in our hearts and remain there basically and prayer and contemplative prayer per se is a part of our godia tradition this is not some uh, foreign element that we we are like importing from another tradition but it's an essential part of our tradition we use the term bandanam to refer to that in connection to prayer which is somehow a daily rendezvous with with the divine so to say a daily period at least it begins it may be in a stance it may be a perpetual 
ongoing feeling in the most advanced stages, but also prayer in the beginning will be something that we start to do per day at certain moments. And gradually that starts to overflow and extend itself to each and every period of the day. Uh, and again, we mentioned how contemplative prayer is an art, the art of sacred appeal. And as with any art, it will take time to be mastered, to be perfected, and there's no limit to that as well. But also in the very beginning stages, it will be kind of a struggle, not so much because the action in itself is difficult, but because we may be the difficult ones. There may be some resistance from our false self, from the false ego, so to say. So also in connection to that, then we continued speaking about the experience of contemplative prayer. And we described that some form of heart surgery <clears throat> and especially we concentrated upon the idea of God's unconditional love, an important point that we already addressed in the past, but it's never enough how much we can talk about that, and, and how much the divine is having unconditional love for everyone, not only for his devotees. For his devotees, that unconditional love will take a particular shape because of the reciprocation from a devotee, but from every other person that is not yet reciprocating still, Bhagavan has unconditional love for everyone. Like the example we gave with the mother and the child. In the beginning, the child, the baby is not reciprocating with the mother, but the mother is already loving him. But eventually that love will take a particular shape according to the reciprocity of the child. Then we concluded sharing a few words about the practice of contemplative prayer. In connection to this idea of unconditional love, we mentioned how Due to God's unconditional love, we are we start praying because of his own initial input, because of his kickstart, so to say. And this practice could be compared to an, an alchemical process if we want to invoke some particular discipline, alchemy, through which gradually, through different exposures to different degrees of tapas or fire, gradually we start to enter into that fire of prayer, fire of introspection, Acknowledging God's position, acknowledging our position, which is the duty of each one, what God will do, what we are expected to do in this interaction called prayer, presenting our heart, our recipient to receive mercy, and also becoming aware of some of the main obstacles that may get in the way in our attempt of praying. One of them being thinking, as surprising as it may sound to some, thinking can be one of the main ways that we invoke, even unconsciously, to avoid confronting reality, just witnessing one thought after another and so on. And ultimately, we mentioned how real prayer, the ultimate experience of prayer will be basically a gift. Again, not something we can deserve, something that happens to us, not something that we do in the sense of, I control and I decide when I will pray. I may try to pray, but prayer happens to us. But for this to happen to us, we have to do our part. We have to be present in the present moment and be attentive and be receptive and consent to God's revelation through prayer. So a few words regarding what we saw last Tuesday. And today we will continue again with part two of contemplative prayer. Today we will be talking about the idea of developing a contemplative mind. So let's begin with that. Let's speak for a while about what does this entail, 
What does means? What does it mean to develop a contemplative mind? You may recall when we gave the lectures on non-dual thinking, and we mentioned how reality is non-dual. The ultimate foundation is of reality is non-dual. So, but we need a non-dual mind to grasp the non-dual nature of reality. We need non-dual thinking for that. So similarly, we need a contemplative mind to deal with contemplative prayer. We need to become somehow contemplatives ourselves. And again, this is not merely a practice, but a lifestyle, a stance toward existence, contemplation, we can call it. A contemplative mind, as we will see. So the topic of last week, in this way, will continue overflowing today in the form of developing a contemplative mind. Today, we will be further discussing which are the the implications of engaging with contemplative prayer and contemplative thinking, and also how all this expresses itself, we will conclude with that today, how this expresses itself through one of the main aspects of, <clears throat> of Gaudiya Sadhana, of our daily practice, which is the chanting of Srinam, of the holy names of Hari. And again, I would like to make this clear one more time. Contemplation or contemplative prayer is a stance, you ultimately. We may begin starting by a practice, but eventually it's a particular mood in which we'll be, be, we'll be imbibed throughout the day and more, hopefully. So it's not something, it's not much something we do, but something we are. Again, we are to become prayer. Someone who prays becomes a prayer. So in other words, contemplation is synonymous with developing a contemplative mind, which is synonymous with contemplative prayer. So all of these are one. Contemplative mind, contemplative prayer, contemplation. As we said last class, again, someone who writes becomes a writer, someone who plays becomes a player, someone who prays becomes a prayer. So we are to become prayer ourselves. That's a life project. It may take some time. And this type of, of natural integration <clears throat> has to gradually take place. Again, gradually, pade pade, step by step, kramena, as a sequential series of events that will be taken day after day, moment after moment, the crafting, life crafting. So Gradually, we will find reach that point where we find, okay, prayer is action and action is prayer. Mm. The two have become one and somehow we have merged in between these two as well, between action and prayer. Our actions become prayer, our prayer becomes action, and we have become one with that. That's the type of merging or sayuja that doesn't go against the Gaudiya canon, so to say. So developing a contemplative mind, what does it mean? We can describe the contempl what's a contemplative mind. We have a mind. We know what's a we may know what's a non-contemplative mind. <laughs> so what's a contemplative mind? We may describe it as the ultimate assault uh, on the calculative mind. The calculative mind is a mind which thinks compulsively, generally, in terms of personal advantage, calculating everything for our own separate interest. This is a type of dualistic mind. We already talked about that, a binary mind, which provides quick security, uh, a false sense of comfort, but never provides wisdom. <clears throat> we can only derive wisdom through a contemplative mindset. 
Mm -hmm. So the contemplative mind, again, can see things in their depth mm, and in their wholeness instead of just in parts, alienated, isolated, separated, fragmented stuff. Again, this is another way of speaking about non-dual thinking versus fragmented consciousness. So we talked about this already, but we yet may need to continue hearing and talking about that from new perspectives of different languages. So a contemplative mind, again, is in other words, a very different way of processing our experience. All of us have experiences, but we may not get experienced through our experiences if we are not processing them through the proper mindset. So contemplative mind is a different way of processing our experiences. All of us have experiences. That doesn't mean we are learning from them and becoming wise. For that, we need contemplative mind. <clears throat> Another word, way of defining the contemplative mind indirectly could be contemplative mind is a non-obsessive mind, thus pointing a non-contemplative mind is an obsessive one. So an a non-obsessive mind, basically. That runs contrary to the present dynamics of the world, which basically promotes an obsessive mindset, especially in these postmodern times we are going through, where the overstimulated mind is actually anti-contemplative, we could say. That's the type of mind we are being given in, in most of society. So in this connection, of course, what does it mean? Non-contemplative, obsession mind. It's, I don't think it's difficult for us to recognize compulsive patterns in our thinking and perception. Each one will have its own favorite ones if it's its own favorite compulsive patterns. But statistics show that between 90, and this may be embarrassing, but sorry to say, between 90-95%, almost all of our thoughts are non-contemplative and are useless and repetitive. Between 90 and 95% of one's thoughts are useless and repetitive. We go over and over again to the same things without broadening the horizon, without going deeper, without extracting wisdom and purpose from that. So yes, it's humiliating. But that's our false sense, false sense of self. It's not us. So we shouldn't get over-identified with that and over-depressed because of that. But we need to transcend that false self. Again, we need to convert, if you will, the false self. We need to make the false ego a devotee, so to say. <laughs> we externally may get initiated, but how much our false ego has become initiated at this point? And so how to do that? How to convert our false sense of self, our false self, our false ego? It may not be, again, a very uh, funny or tasty experience. It may be more of a humiliating one. Sometimes Thomas Keating once said, this Christian mystic, he said, the path of conversion mm -hmm. is a series of necessary humiliations to the false self. That's why Arjuna said to Krishna the Gita, I don't want to go through that. I prefer that I'm be killed. I'm killed physically here in the battlefield, but not going through that series of sequential humiliation. That's too much for my false self. But that's generally the path of conversion. You need to embrace humiliation, a healthy sense of one. Again, I'm not promoting here dysfunctional humiliation, abuse, and so on. 
But yes, some series of humiliation in connection to our false self, which could be described as our relative identity, not the ultimate one. It's not a bad self necessarily. We are not demonizing, no need to demonize the false self. It's just not the real self. So we don't need to hate it, but we need to acknowledge it for what it is and know what, which will be the discipline that we may need to embrace in order to convert it. So at least in the initial stages of our attempt to develop a contemplative mind, our project, contemplative project, which again, the beginning stages will be mostly becoming aware of the dim dimension of our non-contemplative mind. As usual, the beginning of any practice may be to realize how far we are from the ideal goal of that practice. Mm -hmm. But again, that's part of the process. We should celebrate that as humiliating as that may be experienced. Mm -hmm. So at least in these initial stages of the contemplative project, again, the, the experience may be kind of humiliating, will be more of more like unlearning than learning, more like surrendering than accomplishing. So this is not satisfying for the ego, for the false self. And, that, and that's probably why so many people resist this process of contemplation to begin with, because it's not tasty for the false sense of self, because it feels more like the shedding of thoughts in general than attaining new ones, than attaining good ones. Mm? Because it feels more just like letting go, so to say, than accomplishing anything. <laughs> and we already talked about this, about the importance of unlearning before learning, unknowing before knowing. But again, this may not be easy in practice, but we should remain open mm, to this process. And we should remain open continuously. That's another important aspect of developing a contemplative mind, openness. In, instead, we can, contemplative prayer in itself, we could describe it as a series of openings. Our progress in the devotional path could be depicted, portrayed as a series of openings where we are opening our minds and heart more and more as, as we advance. It is a continuous movement of openness. The more advanced you are, the more open you are. First, of course, before speaking about even opening our heart, first comes the opening of our minds, expressing our willingness to, to know the sweet absolute, to relate to Bhagavan, and recognizing what gets in the way of it, what we are talking now, all these non-contemplative compulsive patterns, and over and over again, very repetitively, get in the way. So acknowledging on that with our mind, being willing to go through that openness of mind. And then we can speak about openness of our heart, to move into our heart and to open our heart, to allow our heart to open, to blossom, to flourish in connection to Bhagavan. And as our heart begins to open and expands, somehow we settle in and allow ourselves to see ourselves and to see ourselves as Bhagavan is seeing us, as we already talked about, and we are willing to be present in that sacred moment of being observed through the act of unconditional love. In other words, contemplation implies accepting the situations as a whole, not partially, without rejecting anything, without ultimately judging nor labeling 
but gazing, we could say positively at reality while acknowledging its inherent dignity. There's no need to reject anything because everything is ultimately connected to our source. So how to see that in those terms that has to do with developing a contemplative mind. So that's basically the idea of contemplative prayer to a series of openings in our mind, a series of openings in our heart. An openness means I'm open for this to be what it has, whatever it has to be. I'm not coming with a big list of conditions. I should be experiencing these during contemplative prayer, during my daily life. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't, I'm not even, that's one important point here. We are not during contemplative prayer in the beginning stages of practice. We are not expecting anything in particular. We shouldn't. Some extraordinary things during prayer. Sometimes we over-idealize what should we, what what will, what we should be experiencing. <laughs> but actually, probably the most necessary thing that I need to experience in those moments, at least in certain stage, will be being open to deal with all the ordinariness that needs to be evacuated, so to say, instead of having some extraordinary experience one after another. And also in that connection, it, I will say it's important to, to bear in mind that the central, the main fruits of this contemplative prayer are mostly experienced not necessarily during the moment of prayer itself, but d- throughout our daily life. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily during during the prayer period. So the point is not, not do not be overtly attached over expecting something extraordinary to happen at that moment but pay attention during your day and try to relate how your practice, your prayer practice is affecting the way you perceive reality throughout your day. Remain attentive, remain vigilant. We could say that daily vigilance is the very heart of all spirituality. Again, it's not about, spirituality is not about doing some things during a certain hours a day and the rest of the day I'm having my material life, so to say but remaining vigilant and observing and hearing and being attentive how things are unfolding in connection to my practice, in connection to my ideal. That has a lot to do with developing a contemplative mind, which is what we are talking about here. Gradually, gradually, contemplative mind develops in this way. Gradually, to begin with, of course, little by little, contemplative mind will develop by entering into prayer, again, with, well, 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 as we mentioned, while trying to consent. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the word consent, as, as, was, as I was told recently, means to feel with, consent. Mm-hmm. So to uh, open ourselves to feel along with Krishna. Mm-hmm. Our consent means I allow myself to consent, I allow myself to feel with. Our consent will be our surrender mm-hmm. in prayer basically. And of course, our surrender will eventually become total receptivity, total, again, attention, openness, as this process evolves. How much receptive I am? Put pause and ask that to yourself for a minute. How much receptive I am? During prayer, during my daily life, how much open, how much attentive? And of course, the final fruit of receptivity is it will be without effort. It will be effortless because you are so open, so receptive 
that is that's it <laughs> of course conversely when we feel as if everything relies upon one's own effort as it happens in the beginning even in, in the simplest ways of attentiveness in meditation in prayer can take a lot of energy in the beginning that may be the case because we are still carrying our ego with us our falsehoods it all depends on me it all depends on my effort and capacity so even if you have to do something very simple you are in denial so to say getting in the way of the real experience of consent receptiveness openness so as we already mentioned, again, we, we need to, of course, do some effort in the beginning. It's not that you just sit and embrace epiphany and whatever. You will be flowing like water in prayer. In the beginning, some effort has to be done, especially to be present, to not run, to not take the obsessive mind, again, the compulsive patterns and swift, swift <laughs> to the past and nostalgia or to the future and anxiety and planning and doing lists and things and in a repetitive way, but trying to remain present to the present moment and receive the present of the present moment, to be open in the present, to extend our hands to receive the gift. That means to be open. The gift of unconditional grace wants to be extended to us, but we have to be receptive to that. So in that sense, we should be strict with ourselves, as Srila Prabhupada said, and merciful with others. First, be strict with yourself. Mm. And prayer is an ongoing stance, as we mentioned. It's not something we do once or we have perfected it and it's over. There's nothing else to be developed from that. No, it's an ongoing stance. And therefore, a life of prayer, a life of contemplative prayer, requires that we are contemplating the truth regularly. Again, vigilance on a daily basis ad infinitum for eternity because truth keeps unfolding, ever new patterns. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this is the strictness it is required from us. Mm-hmm. So it is fundamental that one learns in prayer, again, to be receptive, to be active simultaneously. It's not just receptive, means passivity and doing nothing. So harmonizing this idea of full dependence and full responsibility. Again, put pause to the video and ask yourself, what do I understand by these two terms? Full dependence, full responsibility. I'm understanding them in a way way that one is doing away with the other. Or how can I integrate one with the other and embrace the two of them properly? Uh, As we mentioned in our last class, in connection to effort, part, part of our own effort especially in the beginning again, when trying to develop a contemplative mind, is to acknowledge our addiction to our own thoughts. Remember, we, we mentioned how thinking can get it, be one of the main obstacles not to, to not confront reality. So addiction to our own thoughts, they may really get in the way of contemplation. As We, we also, also say this, but it's never enough repeating it, that again, thinking is can be one of the, our biggest defense mechanisms mm-hmm. against transformation. Whenever transformation invitation for transformation is knocking on our door, immediately a parade of thoughts will come in to get in the way of that. Try to again try it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Descartes famously will say, Corgito ergo sum, mm-hmm. 
which means I think therefore I am, but in connection to contemplative prayer, we could say, I think therefore I am not. Because thinking can get in the way of who I am of all, or all that I can be. So in this sense, we are discarding Descartes. Um, I, I have to go beyond thinking to be who I am ultimately. Not discarding thinking itself, but perceiving its own shortcomings for sure. And again, if you don't believe me, you try it for yourself. Try when when when, you, when we try to stop whatever we may be doing and just pray. Try just stop doing everything, be in the present moment, and just remain open to whatever how the absolute wants to introduce himself to you today. As soon as we take out out all away all this outside stimuli, all our inner turmoil turmoil will generally erupt, and one thought after another will behave like in a very compulsive way, like a rat in a cage, so to say, moving and moving and running and so on. So therefore, contemplation, especially in the beginning, this project of developing a contemplative mind may not be that consoling. It will be only, quote-unquote, real, which is not to say that's little. It's real. It's a confrontation with reality, with who we are now and who we want to be. So it may, it may not be consoling in the sense of it may be humiliating, as we mentioned. <laughs> but we may we need to we, we need to understand why we need to go through these stages. As Mahaprabhu will say when he describes the main effects, seven effects of Sri Harinam Sankirtan, and he begins saying Chetutarpanamarjanam, the cleansing of the mirror of the chitta. So first we need to go through that, to the cleansing period, cleaning ourselves. We need to find a prayer form. Chitta is the subconscious, as we mentioned. So we need to find a prayer form, a way of praying, I will say, not external technique, but a way to address praying. We need to find one that actually, we could say, invades our unconscious. Or nothing will change at any depth. If our prayer practice is not addressing, dealing with our unconscious, and it's just a formulaic mechanical thing, nothing, there won't be that much of a transformation. But prayer and spirituality is all about change and transformation. So we should be aware of embracing prayer, whatever prayer, however we do it, in such a way that chito darpana marjanam, that our unconscious is being addressed, cleansed, integrated. So we need to be introspective. You know, in the words of Jesus, he will say, Go into the closet and shut the door. Which you can imagine, not, not necessarily he's saying literally, you know, find a closet and enter there and that's the only play, place you can pray. But basically he's saying enter your heart chamber and stop thinking. Close the door. Close all this flow, repetitive, compulsive flow of thoughts. At least try to pray for open. So only then, when that happens, when you stop the parade of new voices, of new ideas, will you see the underlying and ever-recurring patterns, which is which are behind all this parade. So the first voices that we generally hear normally again are negative. They will be paranoid. They will be obsessive voices. They are. They will be agenda-driven voices insecure voices, 
sometimes lustful voices or lazy thinking. And when you hear all that, of course, you will want to run from there. I, I can assure you. That's why some people cannot enter too much into this world of prayer because all the things start to come when it's so painful to witness that. It's, again, it's a humiliating experience. But interestingly, the word humility comes from humiliation. You cannot have humility without humiliation. And we need humility. Again, humiliation, I refer to this type, not any form of abuse or external humiliation, but the internal one that happens in this type of moments. Without it, we cannot have real humility, and we need humility because the false ego cannot pray. We cannot pray through false ego. We need to get rid of that, and the humiliation will go to the false self. That's the point, not the real self. So in other words, in real prayer, let me put it directly, in real prayer, there cannot be false ego. That's basically what Mahaprabhu is saying in the third verse of Sikshastaka when he says, Trinadapisunichena. You want to really chant Harinam? You want to embrace sacred prayer, sacred contemplation, utmost humility. False ego in between won't allow this. So for that, again, we have to go outside of our comfort zone. Prayer is not a comfort zone, I can tell you. But it's not impossible either. Don't forget. Don't get discouraged by these words, please. So prayer is not a comfort zone. We can make a play of words. Prayer is a confront zone. Not comfort, but confront zone. To confront reality as it is. A bloody word zone, if you will, where false soldiers go to die. The false self have to has to enter into the fire. Again, false soldiers, not the real ones, not the real heroes that we are expected to become. Mm -hmm. And of course, as beautiful as and poetic as this, as our hero prospect may sound, and it is, in actual reality, we may still be petrified about confronting our inner landscape. The hero is not coming. Still, we may be coward, and petrified, and afraid because the inner landscape seems uh, <clears throat> quite dominated by the waves of the false self. So, of course, in the conditioned state, in the false self, state, so to say, uh, it's easy to to philosophize, to speak of philosophy instead of praying and observing ourselves. That's not so easy mm, to become aware of all these inner dynamics. Mm, of course, the exter external attitude mm, for the conditioned soul is by nature easier mm, to be external, to be superficial. It's more attractive, therefore, because it's easy. Generally, as conditioned souls, we are attracted to those things that are easy for us. Our conditioned side, our mediocre side, complacent side is attracted to that. But the inner attitude, the non-superficial one, the substantial one, that's difficult. Again, it's not that the inner attitude itself is difficult. We are the difficult ones. And that's why that is, is difficult for us. And that's why we get discouraged to have an inner attitude. But we have to because the, the real, the actual um, victory in life mm. is always total interior. You can have a, a victory, an external victory, so to say. The real substantial victories in life 
are always totally interior. So, so during those moments in which we begin our prayer practice, as much as we have to acknowledge the obsessive nature of our thinking patterns and our project of developing a non-contemplative non-contempl- mind, also it's equally important, and please take note of this, it's equally important not to resist these thoughts. So imagine you are sitting trying to pray or meditate and all this flow of compulsive, repetitive patterns come. Again, do not hate them. Do not reject them. In one sense, do not resist them. Do not repress them. And much less not don't hate them. So in other words, to put it in some way, we could say that it's it's important to have a joyful thought, a joyful attitude towards the thoughts. A friendly attitude towards the most dreadful thoughts, so to say. <laughs> That's a, an important part of developing a contemplative mind. Prayer doesn't mean that you are not going to have thoughts. But, and notice this delicate distinction, prayer means that we are not going to think about the thought. So you may be sitting trying to pray and a thought comes. You cannot condemn yourself by having a thought. It's coming, but... You can decide to go through the journey with that thought and go who knows where, or to let the thought continue flowing. Like the example of the birds and the nest. You cannot avoid having birds flying above your head, but you cannot can avoid you can avoid birds making a nest on your head. So similar, you cannot cannot avoid having bird-like thoughts coming and going in your mind, but you can avoid them making a nest there. So sometimes during our prayer practice, whatever it may help, that's okay. Whatever it helps, try always to think about Krishna in one form. Whatever it helps for you to reach that place, all prescriptions and prohibitions in Shastra are servants of this main rule this main instruction, always think about Krishna in one way or another. So if during prayer practice, it helps you to to disidentify and and identify with those thoughts, you can label them, for example. Some thoughts come instead of going with the thought, you label them. Oh, that was weekend planning. That was nostalgia. That was projecting. That was daydreaming. And, And allow that to continue. It's like a ship that is coming. You have the the river of your consciousness, if you want to visualize that as such, is it like a constant flow, consciousness, and visualize all of these thoughts like boats. So one boat is coming, you remembering, projecting, daydreaming, and the boats continues. You are not entering the boat and going on that journey, so to say. So that's a way of not hating, nor rejecting, nor repressing, but just putting everything in place, so to say. So, for example, again, memories, past, future planning can happen as they usually do. Again, that happens. It's part of life. But in that, in this case, they will happen without kidnapping one's attention, our attention away from whatever else is going on at the time, whether it's prayer or something else. So instead, those thoughts will be experienced as part of what is occurring at the moment. Try to notice the subtle difference. It's not that they become everything that is happening at the moment. 
but something else is happening, a main thing, this in this case, prayer, and the thought come, and they are experienced as a part of the thing, I'm not the taking all my attention become the very whole thing itself. And gradually we will be able to extend that same pattern, not only to our moments of prayer, but to the rest of our day. Where, where, in those moments where, where we won't be officially praying, but we will be doing so in the form at least of seeing all of our life local, so to say, situations as integrated in, in the context of a bigger picture. Whatever is happening to us, we won't see them as isolated facts, but as a particular point in, in the eternal line of this bigger picture unfolding. So in this way, <clears throat> just a few words to conclude our section on developing a contemplative mind. Contemplative mind implies that one is simply present to what's going on. Nothing needs to be shut out. Nothing needs to be excluded. Strictly speaking, strict, strictly speaking, ideally speaking, there, there can be no distractions in contemplation because everything is part, is simply a part of what's going on. No need to discard reality. Even in, this, in that connection, the profane or the so-called profane has become holy but our by our centeredness, so to say, in the present moment. If you are properly situated in the present moment in prayer, you will find everything can be included, integrated, accepted. That's a contemplative mind. A contemplative mind implies meeting reality in its most immediate form, not filtering reality and fragmenting it, but meeting is with immediacy. And that's 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 experience a sacred relationship where we not only talk but here mostly here mostly pay attention to the unfolding around us inside us outside us in between us so some thoughts about developing a contemplative mind first section of today's lecture allow a few more minutes with me please so we will go next to another section where we will be talking about contemplative prayer as relationship in connection to what we just what we have just mentioned the contemplative mind is, has to do a lot with hearing and paying attention we already talked about that receptiveness openness and that has a lot to do with the idea of relationship if you think for a moment, contemplative prayer, and please do not lose sight of this, contemplative prayer, first and foremost, is a relationship. It's not so much a practice, something I do, but ideally it's a loving exchange between us and God and Bhagavan. And the method of the, the practice of prayer, the method, whatever it may be, is totally in the service of that relationship. So do not separate one of the with the other. It's not here the method practice of prayer and the relationship with God is something else. The method has to be in the service of the relation. In other words, if your practice and method is not fostering and nourishing <clears throat> the development of your relationship with God, there's something to be adjusted there. And with any relationship, if you want to deepen trust, in any relationship, again, including, of course, and especially in our relationship with, with God, deepening trust in every relationship is a process that takes time. Again, 
takes commitment. You cannot just demand trust or press a button. You have full trust in someone. And the process will move gradually as the relationship unfolds from acquaintanceship, getting acquainted with the person, and there to friendliness, and from friendliness to friendship. And from friendship, we could say ultimately to intimacy. Somehow you can feel there the, the dynamics between Santa, Dasi, Sakya, Vatsali, Madura, but not necessarily want to make a full parallel there. But that's how generally a relationship developments, develops, sorry, <coughs> acquaintanceship, friendliness, friendship, intimacy, whatever form of intimacy that may be. So here we are talking about prayer as a relationship we want to develop with Bhagavan. So and it's a conversation. So to converse with God in prayer, in relationship, presupposes also willingness to listen to God. It's not just, I will talk with God, so I will be the one talking and he has to hear. And hopefully he hears well and reciprocates accordingly. That's again how most people conceive prayer but we already mentioned that's what contemplative prayer is not. So if prayer is not so much mostly about me talking and he has to hear me, probably real prayer is a lot about me hearing, listening to God. And listening, for you to listen, for us to listen, listening is an act of silence. There cannot be that much noise for listening to happen. That, that won't be possible. So, and silence, again, because sometimes we understand silence means don't speak. No, no. Silence means hear attentively. Mm. Silence is not about mm, shutting our mouth, but paying close attention. Mm. That's not the same. So be careful of conceiving silence negatively. Mm. So as a result of that, if we listen attentively, everything we say should, ideally, everything we say should come of that initial silence, of that initial hearing. We also talk, of course, there is a place for our tongue, so to say. But whatever we talk and others listen should come ideally from a place of initial silence and hearing. Mm -hmm. That's genuine conversation. When we are involved in a genuine conversation, in any genuine conversation, genuine conversation, you are listening, you are talking, but mostly listening. At least listening is 50% of a conversation. Don't forget that. Don't think conversation is me talking. 50% at least is hearing, listening, and probably more. Because you will be hearing not only the other person, but yourself speak when you are speaking. <laughs> so genuine conversation has to do with listening mostly. Listening, again, is paying attention, being present, being receptive, being open. I mean... If you pay attention, it's amazing what people will tell you if you listen. If you are really there, if you are investing yourself, paying close attention. So if, if it's amazing what people will tell you, what to speak, what Bhagavan will tell you if we listen, if we pay attention. So prayer has a lot to do with that, to being present there and hearing, and hearing what he's revealing. And it is in this connection regarding the importance of silence and hearing that many different mystics from various, various traditions, they have declared that God's primary language is silence. Mm -hmm. Thomas Kitty will say, silence is God's primary language and everything else is a very poor translation. <laughs> Every other version apart from silence. Mm -hmm. Krishna himself in the Gita is saying, of all secrets, mm -hmm. monam, I'm silence. 
So with this, I do, I do not mean that Krishna speaks in silence and you will never, never hear him, but again, that he speaks through our silence. He won't be doing silence when he's speaking, but we have to be silent, attentive, hearing to hear him speaking. So all, of all secrets, I'm silence means, Krishna will say, it means I'll reveal all my secrets when you are hearing attentively. That's our silence. If we are not silent, if we are making too much noise or hearing too much noise outside or inside, we won't be able to listen to Bhagavan's voice. And there won't be an, an experience, an inner experience of prayer, a development in the relationship. And of course, it's difficult to for us to hear. No, no, no doubt about it. Let's acknowledge it again, as humiliating as that may be. So in relation to our difficulty <clears throat> in hearing, comes to mind some words that Carl Rogers mentioned, famous psychologist. He says that the great majority of us cannot listen. He says, we find ourselves compelled to evaluate, evaluate because listening is too dangerous. The first requirement is courage, and we do not always have it first part of his words. So most of us cannot listen, he said. We have to be trained in listening. Generally, we like to evaluate, judge, label everything. Again, dualistic mind. Because listening means opening, and that's dangerous. That has the potential of changing and transforming us. And you have to be courageous to enter in that area. Remember, that has to do with vulnerability also, and courage, our synonymous entering a zone of exposition, of risk. In general, most of us are not very willing to be vulnerable, not very willing to be courageous. So Carl Rogers say that because he knows listening can transform people. When you open really listening, you're willing to be transformed. And Carl Rogers suggested his readers, interestingly, you conduct this short experiment. You can do it yourself if you want. When you, next time you found yourself in a dispute with someone, which may be a very usual moment in our daily life. <laughs> so he says the following. He says, stop the discussion for a moment and institute this rule. Each person can speak up for himself only after he has first restated the ideas and feelings of the previous speaker accurately and to that speaker's satisfaction. If you really understand a person in this way, if you are willing to enter his private world and see the way life appears to him, you run the risk of being changed yourself. This risk of being changed is one of the most frightening prospects most of us can face. Hmm. So I hope you understand the idea. He's very, he makes it very clear, no? Have, conduct this experiment in your daily life. Try talking to someone and then before opening your mouth, repeat what the person said and represent what the person said accurately so the person is satisfied. Yes, you are representing my ideas properly. That requires that first you have to hear what the person is saying <laughs> and empathize and connect with the person. And when you open to that, he's saying here, Carl Rogers, you run the risk. It's not something bad, but of being transformed yourself by that openness. And that risk, generally, we are terrified about being changed and being transformed. 
because all that occurs outside of the comfort zone. And we are terrified about what's going on outside of the comfort zone, entering the confront zone. So if this happens in a relationship with any person, this also applies in our relationship with God, in our conversation with him, in our development of the relationship. Generally, we are not willing to hear, to op be open and be transformed by grace, by him. But that's what we need the most, paradoxically. <laughs> we want to love Krishna. And the most transformative thing that there is, is love. Being, being loved by God means being transformed by him. Being willing to trans constant transformation. Since God's love is an ever-evolving, ongoing pattern that constantly will transform us, will keep us in a very flexible, liquid-like state. So we need to become aware of the implications of the ideal we are pursuing theoretically. We may say, I want love for Krishna. Do you know what that implies? It means that you are willing to be transformed by openness and love on a daily basis, ongoing forever. Are you willing to do that? If we say no, but still you want that love, okay, then you have to figure out what to do. So in other words, it's impossible to love another person without hearing the other person again. I cannot say I want to love you, Krishna, but I don't want to hear you, to listen to you, to open myself to you. So we should put all the things together so we are not contradicting ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if we want to love Krishna, first we should pay close attention to him. Our attention will demonstrate how much we want to love him. Mm -hmm. And Shastra says this many times, pay close attention, Trinu, and so many expressions which say, Hear attentively, pay close attention, because that's the beginning of love, we could say. Investing your attention in that person, in that moment, in that direction. Showing you are open to be changed by what that attention may create. And again, contemplative prayer is all about that. After properly hearing, <clears throat> then in response to, to his call, we will reply, of course. We will hear, Bhagavan will speak. And we will reply to that. We will speak, we will chant. In our particular Gaudiya tradition, we will chant Srinam. But while doing so, we should be aware that Bhagavan is also similarly hearing us attentively. I mean, he's a really good hearer. And he will reciprocate accordingly to whatever is coming out from us. Again, it's a relationship. Why, why the hell we are conceiving <laughs> Our relationship with Bhagavan extremely different as we as in the way that we usually conceive any other relationship. In one sense, it's the same in that sense. He will hear us, he'll reciprocate accordingly to what he hears from us. So what we are telling him, but before what we are telling him, how much we are hearing him, and so on. So, anyhow, a few words in connection to this idea of contemplative prayer as relationship. So let's go to a last one last section to conclude today's lecture and to conclude this series on contemplative prayer. Conclude what between quotation mark again, these are endless topics. So let's speak about chanting Srinam as contemplative prayer. So again, Srinam, the chanting of Harinam, the holy name, which is the main sadhana for Gaudiya Vaishnavas, we could say Srinam is not in itself a prayer because it's vocative directly addressing God by his name, Krishna, Hari, Ram. Prayers are kind of more dative, dative, sorry, in English. Like I address someone, oh, Krishna, or I pray to Krishna, I surrender to you, and so on. 
So even though Nam Srinam, strictly speaking, could not maybe doesn't fall in the category of prayer, it can be and it should be, we could say, chanted in the spirit of prayer, in the spirit of contemplation. So we can chant Srinam applying the attitude of and the spirit that we have shared during the last two classes. All the things we have shared this last two classes are totally applicable to the moment we are trying to invoke the holy name of Hari. And while chanting, again, we should pay a close attention and hear Srinam talking to us. It's not so much about me chanting, but him revealing himself through the name. So we, we should be opening. The two things have to happen simultaneously, ideally. I'm chanting, but I'm hearing Srinam, how Srinam is talking to me, how what Krishna wants to take, tell me. I have to pay attention, but I also have to remain aware that he's listening to my chanting and he will reciprocate accordingly. So he's a Back and forth, two-way street, reciprocal dealing. <clears throat> and regarding how much Krishna hearing us while chanting, again, it's important to remember Krishna doesn't put pressure. Don't forget this part. You know, Krishna is famous for reciprocating with whatever level of relationship we want with him. To with him, he won't impose himself on us. He won't force a particular rasa, so to say. So if we want to chant our round, so to say, and we, and if we want him to be pleased with us by our daily sadhana, he will be. Okay, Krishna, I'm doing this per day. Please be pleased with that. He said, okay, I'm pleased. That's what, what you want. I, I, I adjust to that. But that standard is set according to our own appetite, so to say. So be careful of that. There's always further scope to how much the relationship can grow into. So again, Harinam, Harinam Chintamani is all-powerful, is a touchstone, it can give everything. But also we should say, although Harinam Chintamani can fulfill all desires, Harinam won't fulfill a desire that we don't care to have. Don't be naive in that sense. Don't, I, I will desire anything, but a particular thing that I want, but I want also Krishna to fulfill some desires that I don't have, that I want. I don't want to pay, pay the price for. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. By the quality of our own desire, we are determining what the wish-fulfilling name will give us. So we have a part to play in the role. What are we investing ourselves into the chanting? How many people actually, as a friend of mine say, you know, how many people just aspire to finish the daily quota of rounds and they get just that? And for some people, it's just about reaching a 16 number, 64, whatever the number, reaching a quota. For them, that's it. It's not about developing a relationship, investing certain particular desires. So they just want to reach the name, the number, and they get that. But that's not it. That's not everything. So it's important that we take proper responsibility of how much we are investing ourselves and how much do we want to invest ourselves in this sacred relationship of chanting. Remember, a symptom of good chanting, of good japa, or good kirtan is you have a taste for chanting. And a symptom of bad chanting is you don't have a taste for that. And you are struggling to complete, to finish whatever you are doing. And, and of course, if you are doing it, like feeling, I have to do it, or I have to finish this, instead of saying, I want to do it, you are sending a message 
to Snam Prabhu telling him, I don't like to spend time with you. I just want to finish this as soon as possible. So how, how do you think that will uh, converge into a loving relationship with Krishna? Just counting instead of chanting. So my point again is this is not to, for us to feel guilt, but just to readjust if we need to readjust our practice in what in whatever way that will make us engage in our practice in a way that is heartfelt and we are really investing our presence and attention. Because if not, it's just mechanical formulaic repetition. And in this context, it may be important to remember that if if a catatonic, let's say like this, a catatonic repetition of anything, not only the chanting, but anything, everything can become mechanical and formulaic. So a catatonic repetition of anything is a recipe for unconsciousness, which is the opposite of any real consciousness, any real intentionality or spiritual maturity. So we should be very introspective and attentive to how much I, my so-called sadhana and daily practice is just a series of catatonic repetitions which kind of numb myself, which kind of take to unconsciousness instead of Krishna consciousness. Mm -hmm. So yes, we are to attain this ideal form of intentionality, but in contrast to that, again, how, how, to, how, how to create that so we do not fall into this unconsciousness in the name of sadhana, to, to, to chant, to pray with the proper intentionality, probably we should spend a few minutes before starting our prayer, starting before starting our chanting, we should spend a few moments trying to focus our intentionality, trying to focus our chanting, not just starting automatically without any further thought. Mm -hmm. Richard Rohr gave one this example of the, he, he gave the example of scanning a malicious software, so to say. He said he, that's a good metaphor for what, what the first minutes in any session of contemplative prayer must always be. Uh, take a few minutes to scan malware, malicious software. If you do not do a, a conscious scan of how and why your, your mind are operating in a certain way at the beginning of your prayer time, often hidden and well-disguised malware, malicious software, will control the entire experience. If you don't spend those initial moments trying to align with reality and what we may be expected through your journey in that moment, you may be just starting automatically and being controlled from moment one. Of course, we don't want that. In connection to Srinam, we want what we call Nam Siva, which is a big contrast to that. The main principle in the chanting is <laughs> I want to increase the pleasure of Srinam. <clears throat> Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta, even he emphasized the the service about the chanting and what the point what's the point he made is not that he's considering the chanting is less important but the point was you have to have the proper attitude when you are chanting a service willingness to serve a willingness to give pleasure a willingness to be properly aligned in the famous case when a devotee say tell told said, i'm not feeling anything while chanting and he said great he kind of congratulated him, <laughs> like saying, who say this is about you feeling something. <laughs> it's about you making someone else feel something, giving pleasure to Bhagavan, something like this. You know? So gradually, again, not to force ourselves nor to torture ourselves because we are not there. 
But to have these noble ideals, clear picture, a clear picture in our mind of those and see from where, wherever we are, where should I put myself, how to align. So I'm gradually walking in that direction. When we say service, remember, we are not talking about doing stuff, a specific activity, but a specific attitude, a service attitude to, to keep ourselves in a state of prayer. To that we refer as a service attitude. State of prayer. We are talking. Try to connect all the things. To try to link all these dots together. So in that way, when we are in that situation, the active work, whatever we may be doing, becomes service. That what we call devotional service. That will be proportion. That will happen proportionately to how much such work is based upon an internal life of prayer. If you have an internal life of prayer your work will become devotional service. So that prayer becomes synonymous with that devotional service. In other words, prayer is not qualifying us for a greater work, but prayer in itself is the greater work. Contemplative prayer will remain, become the main activity, which gives, put everything else in context and extends and overflows and sprinkles every other activity in our daily life. Some words I wanted also to share in connection to chanting Srinam, in connection to, to the idea of contemplative prayer. So let's conclude sharing a few words of conclusion. Uh, and in relation to contemplative prayer, again, I like, again, let's try to emphasize there's a starting place for contemplative prayer. There will be a continuing place for that, and there will be an ending place. And that ending has no end, paradoxically, and continues evolving and unfolding. Again, this latter, this ending of contemplative prayer is not so much a goal to be attained, but an ever more resolute commitment to our journey, which is nourishing itself continuously. <clears throat> so in whatever chapter we may be of our journey, beginning one, intermediate one, mature one, in one sense it doesn't matter, we could say, we need to embrace the spirit of prayer accordingly. And for each stage, there will be a corresponding spirit of prayer, so to say, to be embraced. But also we should understand how, by its very nature, as we mentioned, contemplative prayer is a stance. Over and over again, I will mention that. Stance that will accompany us into eternity. It's part of our swarup, so to say, of our ultimate identity. Unfortunately, of course, the word prayer, as we mentioned last week, or, or the word religion and so many other words have often been trivialized or stigmatized in some cases by, by making them into a way of getting what you want. Prayer is the magical trick. You can play on God so you get the blessings you need or whatever. But again, here we're using prayer in a very different way, trying to point to its real meaning. Prayer as an the umbrella word, so to say, which encompasses, includes so many other ideas, an umbrella word for any interior journey or practice hmm, that will allow us to experience faith, hope, and love within ourselves. And we need to experience all the things, I can tell you. So prayer will be uh, a, a term that will refer to whatever practice, to whatever experience allows me to experience this, these things of love, hope, these unique ingredients, faith, and so on. Mm -hmm. So again, prayer is not a technique. 
to manipulate God, forgetting things, to domesticate the divine. It's not a pious exercise that somehow makes God happy with me, or it's not even a requirement for entering to heaven. I have to be a good prayer boy and do my prayers per day, this amount, and then I will obtain my particular access into eternity. It's it's not so much a, a requirement for entering to heaven. Prayer is more much more like practicing heaven now. Let's say like that. And for, especially for us Gaudias, for whom bhakti is both sadhana and sadhya. It's both the goal to be attained, but also the means to that goal. So we'll talk more about pray, practice in heaven now in the next series of lectures that we will start next week, our final series as well. But today we'll finish here. So thank you so much for your time, for your attention. And the brief homework for those who will like for finishing and it's, let's try to reflect on our relationship with Trinam and what we can do to develop that relationship hmm? while chanting and prayer. Let's try to make even a journal, whatever it helps, to reflect where is my relationship with God now? And what can I do to continue developing that relationship, that bond through my practice of prayer? So today we conclude in this way with the final class on contemplative prayer. And next Tuesday, we will begin with our last series of lectures inside the bigger radical personalism series. We'll finish with a three-part class. So we have three more classes starting from next week, next week where we'll be, start, we'll be speaking about on earth in heaven, so to say. The sacredness of matter. The, 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 the specific title for the talk next week will be the spiritual sacredness of the material world. Hmm? Somehow in connection to the topic we have just shared and we have mentioned today. Hmm? Because the more we grow as Gaudias in our prayer, the more we grow in relationship to with, with Srinam, with Bhagavan, again, the more Srinam will also reveal not only Nam, but then Rupa, Guna, Lila, form, qualities, pastimes, and the more we will be able to participate in a life of divine love, even here in this world. There is, in one sense, no need to go anywhere since everything is state of consciousness, so to say, and not so much a physical, geographical location, but something to be attained. If we are to attain something, if we are to attain Golag Brindavan, so to say, it all begins here and now, wherever we are. So basically that's the idea. And, and we will be unfolding this idea of how the world of matter is not necessarily something bad or to be rejected or to run away from, but if properly understood and approached, it will be a total portal to transcend us. This including everything that is material, our body and everything in relation to it and so on. So we'll begin with this new series, the last three classes of our Radical Personalism series next Tuesday. Thank you so much for your attention, for your openness, for hearing attentively, and see you next week. Sri Gaurhari Ki Jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Sri Haninam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhaktavrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Praman Haribo, Mancha Kalpatarubhya Shakripasundu Bhyayivacha, Patita Anam Pavani Bhyo Vaishnavibhyanamonam, Ananta Koti Vaishnavrinda Ki Jai, Good, how do you